Hello, my name's Helen Russell. I'm a journalist, happiness researcher and author. And How To Be Sad is the podcast exploring why we get sad, what we can do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better, inspired by the book of the same name. Each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Jodie Day is the founder of Gateway Women, the global support network for childless women, now celebrating its 10th anniversary. Jodie is also a psychotherapist and author of Living the Life Unexpected, How to Find Hope, Meaning and a Fulfilling Future Without Children, the book the British Medical Journal now recommend to patients coming to terms with unavoidable childlessness. Jodie says now, in no way do I wish to diminish the heartbreak you might be feeling. I've been there. It's the darkest place I've ever been. You never get over childlessness. It's not the flu, but it is possible to heal around it. So Jodie Day, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Helen. So I would love for anyone who hasn't read the book, could you start by telling us a little about your own journey? Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm now entering my, I call it hashtag apprentice crone years, uh, 56, soon to be 57, Um, But when I was younger, you know, I grew up in a a home where uh, things were quite unhappy. And so I didn't sort of grow up with the idea that family life was something I wanted to to replicate for myself. So I think I I began my my sort of my journey as a young woman as probably being quite child free. And this was this was really challenged when um, I got pregnant accidentally at 20 and I was terrified because I thought I was going to be fulfilling sort of uh, my family legacy of having a child young, out of wedlock, and it, uh, quote unquote, ruining my life. So um, I had an abortion at 20 and went on a few years later to meet the man I would marry. And when I when we were getting to that stage, I said to him, I, I don't think I want to have children. And he was like, OK. And then we got married and, you know, I was 29 and I sort of had come to realize that children weren't, having children didn't necessarily mean having my childhood. And so I changed my mind, luckily for me, because, you know, this is a conversation that can derail a lot of relationships. He was okay with the change of plan and we started trying for a family. And um, I was never able to conceive and it was unexplained infertility. I had a operation a few years later called a laparoscopy where they send a sort of like um, a camera uh, through your belly button to have a look around. And we tried very hard um, and I did a lot of alternative treatments, but nothing worked. And I entered a period of profound what I call baby mania, which uh, anyone who has struggled to conceive will know exactly what I'm talking about. And we were sort of just on the cusp really of thinking about fertility treatments when our marriage broke down under the stress of it all when I was 37. So I found myself back out on the dating world at sort of 40, hoping still to meet someone and do IVF, which I thought was a silver bullet, which always worked, because that's kind of the impression you get until you get a bit closer to it. That didn't work out. I didn't meet someone to take that adventure with. And so at 44 and a half, it was over. So that was my journey to not being a mother. I think what was so hard for me is at that point when I looked for support, when I looked for understanding, when I looked for guidance from friends, from family, from the medical profession, from the therapeutic profession, from Dr. Google, there was nothing. 
And so a couple of years later, I was doing my training to become a psychotherapist. And I started my blog, Gateway Women, which was actually uh, my first blog was 10 years ago. Um, so we're celebrating our 10th anniversary. And from that has grown everything, including my book, uh, Living the Life Unexpected, which really grew out of my work with childless women, helping them to come to a better place with their childlessness, as I had done. So that's the potted history of how it all happened. Thank you. And I think you mentioned IVF there and the idea that many of us think it's a silver bullet. I think it's worth mm. reiterating some of the the real statistics around that, isn't it? It's only, it's only around 23% of, of IVF treatments are successful. It is shocking. And I mean, in, in my work, I support many women who sort of went to, you know, IVF clinics in their early 40s. And that's when they heard the statistics, you know, when they were told that they would possibly have a, you know, a 3% likelihood of success, you know, which let's, let's face it is a sort of 97% failure rate. You know, those are very bad gambling odds. But the overall success rate, you know, is, as you say, under 25% globally. And even with uh, the highest success rate is still under 50%. And that is for women who are in their 20s. So what I didn't know, what so many people of my generation didn't know, I think the next generation is more clued up about this. I didn't even know that my eggs aged. I didn't, I knew that fertility declined as you got older, but I didn't actually understand the mechanism of it. And I felt so stupid when I realized what I didn't know. Because all I'd learned at school was, you know, just don't get pregnant. In fact, you know, don't even sit on a warm chair that a boy's just been in, <laughs> just in case. Yes, the messaging is very much don't get pregnant, isn't it, at school? It's Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm thrilled that teenage pregnancies have dropped so much in all developed countries. However, the message is so strong that basically, you know, you can get pregnant at the drop of a hat. That's not the case. I mean, I was... I convened a panel at, uh, at WOW, the Women of the World Festival, a few years ago, and there was a gynecologist on the panel with me. And she said, actually, it's a miracle that anyone gets pregnant. Pregnancy in humans is incredibly difficult, you know, because of our immune system, you know, uh, accepting a foreign body into it. She said, it's actually, it's a miracle we manage it at all, rather than it being this, you know, incredibly easy thing. Um, we're very infertile compared to most other mammals. And I think the the miracle idea as well isn't so helpful. I spoke to the journalist Bibi Lynch for How to Be Sad, and she says that she'd certainly felt almost conned by the media coverage of miracle babies or of celebrities conceiving later in life, and and that's not helpful as well. That is so difficult, and I you know I really feel for those celebrities because some it is a public event, but also it's a very private event in their family life. And if they have conceived their children with donor eggs or via surrogacies or with assistance, that is actually a terribly private matter between them and their children. Yet, unfortunately, because it is not discussed, it gives this erroneous impression of fertility in women of kind of mid 40s and older. But just like we only see the miracle baby stories, the successful stories in the press, in the media, I also wonder how many celebrities are there out there who have thrown an equal amount of money and time and health at the issue and have not ended up with a baby. 
you know, that their, their surrogate miscarried, their donor eggs didn't work, all of the things that we know can happen, sadly, because fertility is one of those things that does, you know, like death, does not respond to human will, but we give the appearance that it does. And that is, that is desperately difficult for women to discover. I, th- I think what's what's really helpful about about gateway women and the, the work that you're doing is, as you say, is talking about these things more and surfacing mm-hmm. it. In your book, I was really interested to read about the incidences of of PTSD in women who've experienced infertility treatments. I think you wrote fifty percent of women who'd undergone fertility treatments had symptoms of post traumatic stress disorder, compared to eight percent of the general population. It's such an ordeal that just doesn't get spoken of. And that's actually higher than combat veterans, that 50%. And that's because it is so invasive. Yes, absolutely. And, and over often over a long period of time and repeated interactions. I mean, I recently created what we think is the world's first training programme for therapists around the impact of involuntary childlessness on sexual intimacy in couples. And that's for COSRUT, um, the UK College of Sex and Relationship Therapists. And the, you know, the impact on your, on, on your sense of your, of your body as a pace of pleasure and also the privacy of your own body. You know, I remember one, one woman saying, I don't know how many men have seen my vagina. And the, the comments that are made during this time, the lack, of, the lack of sensitivity that this is a traumatic experience that the woman is going through. She is kind of being, in a way, sort of her body is being violated. And it can be experienced on such a profound level. And that can come between the couples in very difficult ways, you know, uh, rediscovering their own sexual self and what their sex life is about after infertility and childlessness is something that as far as I can work out, every childless couple I know nods, but none of them want to really talk about it publicly. You know, I'm going to be talking about this more in a, I'm going to be doing a, a webinar later this year with uh, sex and relationship experts, a public webinar to talk about this, because it feels like another one of the taboos within the taboo of childlessness that really needs to be surfaced and normalized so that people can not feel alone with it. Yeah, certainly. And, and the idea that that if people are feeling alone and this this grief for a child that you have not had I think this idea of disenfranchised grief is so fascinating. Vivi Lynch spoke to me a little bit about this, but could you explain what, what, what that means to you? Disenfranchised grief, I mean, it comes from the work of Professor Kenneth Doker, who first named it in the 1980s. And I think perhaps the name for it is a little bit too technical, I think, perhaps for people to really grasp what it means, because often I have to explain what disenfranchised means before I can explain what disenfranchised Okay, go on then. Do disenfranchised first. (laughs) Disenfranchised means kind of not permitted, um, not allowed. And, you know, not you're not free to have this emotion. There are sort of newer expressions, which I think are perhaps more self-explanatory, like it is a non it is a non death grief. And it is a living loss. But the disenfranchised part of it is helpful because it one of the, the grief is a social emotion, you know, and we have to have permission from our society to experience it and for it to be allowed to be empathized with. And when you are grieving your childlessness, one of the things you will possibly hear is you can't grieve something you haven't had. And this is absolutely not true. Grief is the emotion and at the physiological, 
psychological and spiritual experience that arises in us when something has irrevocably been taken from us. It can never be got back. It's gone. It's gone forever. And that is something that happens to us many times in life. And, you know, heartbreak is, is, you know, is an acceptable form of grief. But what about the heartbreak of unrequited love? The unrequited love is a disenfranchised form of grief. It was never a relationship. So how can you possibly, you know, be heartbroken over it? Because heartbreak is an acceptable word for grief. So disenfranchised grief is a grief that is not allowed to be in relationship with others, not allowed to be spoken about, not allowed to be experienced. And when you are experienced, experiencing it, you're sort of told that you're malingering, that you need to get over it, that there's something wrong with you, that perhaps you're mentally ill, that you're a drama queen, that you've got a personality disorder, all kinds of things other than, gosh, how are you doing this today? Just, just a little bit of empathy, because if one was to have lost a living child, people would understand that it was a bereavement. But I did think that perhaps that provided a lot more sympathy over a longer period of time. And I was contacted by bereavement therapists quite early on in sort of my writing for Gateway Women and said, well, actually, after a couple of years, people do still expect you, even as a, a bereaved parent, to sort of put, pull yourself together, especially if you, you go on to have more children. And there is this sense that, you know, if on the anniversary of that child's birthday or death, you are still grieving 10 years later, you're kind of looked askance at, which actually it breaks my heart because it's something obviously I, I deal with all the time because the anniversaries of childlessness are written so deeply in our hearts. And even if we forget them cognitively, our body remembers them forever. In what, in what way would that be? You can have a sense that, you know, the day that you would have given birth had you not had a miscarriage. You may not have it written in your diary, but when that time of year starts to come up, you start to feel unaccountably sad. And then you realize, you start to realize, oh, it's that time of year again. It's like the, the body has a deeper wisdom. If we, if we see grief as a form of healing rather than an illness or a character failure, as it's often seen as, we can see that it's actually healing happening. And so that's what I do when I when I, I have a griefy moment or a griefy day is I've I've learned to welcome it in. And and I actually open my heart literally physically at the front of my chest and I breathe the grief in and I imagine it passing through my heart. And for me, really importantly, out the back of my heart. So it's passing through me and I'm going, that's another piece of my heart healing. And I invite it through. That's a really valuable exercise. Thank you for sharing that with us. It seems so extraordinary for me that that it is something so seldom discussed, especially considering the statistic. Is it one in one in five women? One in five women is the average. So that's the number of women who are reaching midlife without children. 10% of those are child-free by choice. 10% of those are child-free due to infertility or other medical issues. But 80% eight zero percent are childless by circumstance and that is still something that is kind of missing from the public narrative and many of those are childless because they either don't have a partner or didn't have a partner um, during their fertile years and also there's an awful lot of other structural reasons why uh, women are ending up childless when that wasn't the choice to do with finances housing timing education 
it's so complex often to create the right environment or a suitable environment to bring in a child. And also there's many chronic illnesses and traumas and things like that that can, it feels like you work on those to get the situation right and then your fertility has timed out. And with with education, I, I was very interested to you write about um, the education system and perhaps the, the career structure that many of us will feel compelled to follow is not set up to leave an available and helpful window for women's fertility in many cases. Absolutely. And I do get some quite ranty emails from, I have to say, I'm afraid they are from men telling me that, well, it serves us right, you stupid feminists. Um, yes. <laughs> but the, the fact is, is that, you know, in my lifetime, you know, I was born as the an unplanned teenage pregnancy to a 60s Catholic teenager. And, you know, when I look at what's happened in, in my lifetime, which has been, you know, ac- access to the pill, uh, access to legalized and safe abortion, women's access uh, to higher education, to the professions, fertility treatments, all in one generation, all in my lifetime. You know, many of us were brought up by mums who didn't have those options and were thrilled for us and encouraged us to go for them. And quite rightly, but one of the unintended consequences of that can be that we entered a system that had been set up over many, many, many years since the Industrial Revolution of of working in the professions, which was, you know, to get educated, to be a sort of apprentice during your 20s, for your career to really take off in your 30s, and to be be able to create a family in your 40s. Now, that works really well for male fertility, but women have gone into that world and it doesn't work. I mean, there have always been women who combined work with having a family. They're called the working class. You know, it's it's just that the, the professional setup doesn't really suit female fertility. And also with us all living so much longer and with probably retirement becoming a quaint phrase in another generation, the idea that we've got to sort of pack all that in by the time we're 35 or 40 is is something we really massively need to rethink. Because in a way, perhaps having your family in in your 20s and early 30s and then going to university in your 40s and then really hitting your stride in your, in your career in your 50s, you know, might actually work a lot better over the life course than the current system. Um, so it, it's structural. There are structural issues that, that don't work for women because we have entered a world that wasn't built by us. So it's radical change that, that might be what's needed. Yes, and that's very, very hard to do. I mean, it, Gateway Women is, you know, 10 years on, we are changing the conversation. But one of the difficulties is that the childless woman is still seen as a figure of fun or something to be feared. So it is quite difficult for us to find voice in society because we're kind of like the, you know, we're the bad fairy at the christening. We're Cruella de Vil. We're Snow White's evil stepmother. We do not have a good standing in society. So it's hard to be that voice, that canary in the coal mine, because no one wants to listen to us because we're the feared figure. I'm that childless woman. And what, what do you think that that fear is based on? I'm, I'm beginning to think it has deep, deep tribal roots in our collective unconscious. If you think about it, we are the dominant species on the planet, not because we run the fastest or we've got the biggest claws. 
but because we are cooperative, because we work together to solve problems. And what creates a tribe? People. Our early survival as humans depended on big families, on big tribes, on growing the number of the tribe. You know, we had massive infant mortality until very, very recently in human history. So, you know, the fertile woman and the woman who was having lots of children was extremely important. And a woman who was not able to have children, you know, there was no real understanding of what that might be like. So in a way, she was seen as a threat. Perhaps she was cursed. There was a real fear of the childless woman, which interestingly enough, because she wasn't bringing up children, she often had time to dedicate to learning. She often became the midwife, the healer, what in later times would sadly be called the witch, because she had time to devote to wisdom because she wasn't bringing up children. So there was also value in that, but it was value, it was power that was feared. So if you imagine you take that which is unconscious into the modern world, and I think that plus under patriarchy, childless women are actually a little bit of a disruptors in the system. Because if you can imagine there's now one in five of us are, are not bringing up children, we are educated, we are out in the world. And should it be our life's calling, we can become, we can focus on being quite prominent and creating change in the world and ascending to positions of power. We don't have to, but some of us are interested in doing that. Now, if you can imagine we get to a point where one in five women is able to do that, and we have many women in positions of power, we have very many female you know, prime ministers and leaders around the world now, the idea that men have been in charge because they're better at it, that they're suited to it, that they're born to it, starts to break down a little. Because actually, no, maybe it wasn't the case. Maybe they just weren't bringing up children. <laughs> Maybe that's why they had the time to lead countries and write books and create social change and be great artists and composers and leaders because they had the time. It's very destabilizing to the social order to have a lot of to have a lot of childless women around. You have a very lovely section in the back of the Life Unexpected about about sort of female role models in different areas that I think is so helpful. I, I recently spoke to someone who going through a divorce who said, I just kept Googling, you know, successful divorced women. And I think anyone going through any life stage, you will, you just want to see that there are people like you who you can look up to. And that's really helpful. Yes, but it's very hard to be it if you can't see it. And I know for me that when I was first coming to terms with my childlessness, I couldn't find anyone. You know, there was Oprah, that seemed to, and she was child-free by choice and very happy with it. But amongst my, my, my circle of friends and family, acquaintances and colleagues, and at that time in British culture, I couldn't find a single childless woman who had not chosen it, but had come to terms with it. Uh, the child-free woman, the woman who has chosen not to have children, has been getting a lot more airtime in the last few years, and that's fantastic. But they tend not to carry the burden of shame and grief that often goes with childlessness. And they have been considering and reflecting on their situation for much longer, often their whole lives. So they're, in a way, their thinking is a lot more evolved, and they're at peace because they actually got the life they wanted. So they come across so powerfully and so wonderfully that in a way, I think people think there are more of them than there are. But it's actually in the UK for those born in 1971, it's sort of 6% of women who are childless at midlife are childless by choice, what's called child free. It's a much smaller percentage than people realize. 
But because women who are childless not by choice often don't talk about it because it's so badly received and sort of pretend maybe that they're more okay with it than they are just to rebut those awful social situations, you know, it can be really difficult to, to know us, but we're hidden in plain sight. And I would love to, to talk about the things that can be helpful to do the grief work, but I wonder whether first it might be useful to, to maybe share some of the unhelpful cultural ideas and unhelpful things that people do say, and then what people can do to respond, what you tend to recommend. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, we call them bingos because on a really bad day, you can get a full house. And I explore these in my TED talk, The Lost Tribe of Childless Women. They appear to be fairly universal, which is interesting because that does show that they're kind of little um, sort of embedded unconscious messages. And these can come from the most empathic people in other areas. Um, you know, so if you do have children, it's like, um, then you have to kind of answer it. Uh, number one, I would, I would suggest to people, take a breath. You don't necessarily have to. And if you say no, or as I used to say, you know, unfortunately not, the next question will nearly always be, why not? And this can be someone you've met at the bus stop. This can be a new colleague at work. This can be absolutely anyone from, you know, and it's like, if you've been having fertility struggles or if you're grieving your childlessness, I mean, it's like the floor opens up beneath you. Yes, I would cry regularly, just out and about. <laughs> Don't ask people that. And there is this extraordinary sense of proprietary towards a woman's uterus. You really see this, actually. You know, when, when a woman is pregnant, suddenly it's as if her body isn't her own anymore. You know, strangers will come up and ask her questions about things. People will, will, will touch an, a, a pregnant woman's belly and without, without asking permission. There is this extraordinary sense of ownership. And with childless women, it's like, well, why not? And at that point, you know, you're faced with a real dilemma because you, you can give a detailed answer, which often can be quite overwhelming for the person. But what you will hear back often is, why didn't you just adopt? Why don't you just have a baby on your own? Other, other bingos can be, oh, you're so lucky. You get to sleep in and travel or you dodged a bullet there. Children aren't all they're cracked up to be. Or here, have one of mine. Or oh, you're one of those career women, aren't you? Or as someone once said to me at my, my ex-father-in-law's funeral, when I was kind of you know, eight years into failing to conceive, a woman came up who I never met, uh, an old lady grabbed me by the elbow, looked up at me and said, you're so selfish, your generation. He would have loved to have had you know, an elder, a grandchild by his eldest son kind of thing. And I had never met this woman before in my life. I was grieving my, you know, my father-in-law, my marriage was in shreds and I was suffering from unexplained infertility. And she just presumed, you know, I was making a selfish choice not to have children. I also really, really hate the idea that not having children is selfish because actually if you're someone who knows that parenting isn't for you and that there are other things that you feel your life is calling you to, I think perhaps to have children in that situation is selfish. I wish people thought more about having children and whether it was right for them rather than less. Yeah. And so what is there? Are there any zingers? Are, are there any sort of surefire ways to rebuff these kind of unhelpful and really hurtful comments? Oh, it's it really depends where you are on your grief journey and how robust you're feeling. I think when you're in deep grief, you really just have to do your best to get yourself out of that situation, as you say, without bursting into tears. Um, although bursting into tears is an option. 
<laughs> it does shut down the conversation rather well, I have found, yes. I think first of all is to, I would encourage you to take a breath. You know, as women, we have been acculturated to, to, to be compliant, to do the emotional labor, to answer the question. I would say, first of all, take a breath. This is personal information. You know, you do not have to answer it. So then I would choose from almost like a selection of statements that you have pre-prepared that work for different situations. You might need a jokey one. I used to use jokey one like at, at sort of cocktail parties. Remember those? Something like, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, just to go, and then they would look at me and we would, you know, we would laugh it off or, or you might want a, a thoughtful and kind one. Like I used to say, unfortunately not. And then I used to continue it if I could, if I thought it was one of those why not people and say, and none of the other options were really suitable for us either. So just to kind of, let's just close down the whole thing. Often you can find that it's helpful to bat it back very quickly because it will not be a childless person or someone struggling with infertility who's asked that question. It will be probably 99 times out of 100, they will be a parent. And they're just looking for a way to connect with you socially. They're actually not looking to drop a bomb on you. They're actually just trying to connect. So you can say, it's kind of a long story, didn't really work out for us. How about you? Do you have children? You know, so you just bat it right back. So you need a variety of things. You can also be quite, you know, you can also be quite honest and say, actually, that's a bit of a tender topic. Maybe when we know each other better. That's nice. It's really important to recognise that you own your story and you choose who you share it with. And you are not the childless Google. You do not have to explain everything to them. You do not have to explain about fertility rates, how difficult it is to adopt the decisions that you or you and your partner have made or are making or will make. This is a private matter and you're allowed to keep it private. I think that's very good advice in terms of not, you are not the infertility Google. Yes. Send people to do the work themselves. You talk in your, in your TED talk, which I love, which everyone should watch, about how uncomfortable we are with the unfixable in our society. And, and in my book, How to Be Sad, I'm looking a lot at how, how we are so uncomfortable with, with sitting with any kind of discomfort and we try to medicate it away or, or fix it with technology. And is childlessness, I wonder, one of the ultimate, one of the ultimates in terms of things that we just are uncomfortable with because we cannot just click our fingers and fix it? Absolutely. Childlessness is a form of death. I think there is a, you know, it's the death of your line. I think there is a whiff of death about childless women, unconsciously, that people are really uncomfortable about. And now that there are options to fix it, as you say, um, and if you've never had to explore what those are, you will have the impression, as I did, that they, they always work. It's very natural for people to jump to that, to infertility treatments, to, to adoption, to various other things. You know, you can do the idea that actually you might have tried all those things and they didn't work. That, you know, as we were talking about with, you know, with celebrities and people with access to, you know, huge financial and medical resources, you can throw everything at this and still not have a baby. And the idea that there are things in life, like infertility, childlessness, old age, and death, that do not respond to human agency and will is terrifying. You know, we live in an age where we like to think we can solve everything, but actually we are still these 
fragile fleshy envelopes of water walking around in a sharp pointy world with finite lives you know it's like we are so fragile and powerless over over the really big things and many of the small things too but that is a massive inconvenient truth it certainly is so jody i would love for you to tell us about what we do with that grief i spoke to the psychotherapist Julia Samuel about again living losses and the idea of of how we handle this but you had some really great suggestions in in your book and I loved the research from from Sue Ryder charity about I, I really like the finiteness that we grieve on average about two years one month and four days after losing a loved one and that you are very you give a lot of hope in your work and in your writing about this will hurt and it will hurt a lot and it will never go away but if you do some work you will feel better a bit better in about a year so can you tell me about what we should be doing to grieve these living losses i think the most important thing that grief needs is it needs company it needs empathic company it is very helpful in all forms of grief especially in the early stages, to be around people who've experienced a very, very similar form of grief. So, for example, you know, for bereaved parents of young children, it is incredibly helpful to be with other bereaved parents of children around that age. And for women who are grieving their childlessness, it is incredibly important, particularly as our grief is disenfranchised, that we have other childless women who are prepared to look at their grief, to discuss it with because there will be many childless women perhaps in your life who are not willing to discuss it, who are not willing to go there. Um, You need to find what I call the conscious childless women, the ones who are consciously, they know that they're grieving and they they need support. Grief is a social emotion, it is a form of love. It needs an other, it needs relationship. That is how it heals. If it was possible to grieve on our own, in our heads, in our rooms, We would do it and we'd all be fine, but it doesn't work like that. And until grief has that other to be connected to, until you can look into the eyes or you can read the words of someone online and you can have that sense that they 100% understand what you're talking about, there is some kind of magic alchemy of healing in that moment. And I feel very moved to think about it now because I don't know where I would be today had I not found those women online. I remember just tears running down my face. I'm just like, oh my God, I'm not alone in this. I, I, I am understood. And that is how grief heals, is this deep sense of reflection, of recognition, of empathy. And then one of the really extraordinary things about grief, and I talk about this in my work a lot, is that grief is a process of identity transformation. Probably the the, the, the last time in our life for many of us, if we haven't been through a deep grief before, that we will have experienced such profound alteration to our identity was probably adolescence. It changes everything about us. Loving someone or something and losing someone or something changes. We can never go back to who we were before. We are profoundly altered. So as well as kind of needing support with the emotional side of grief, There's also the fact that it alters all of the relationships in our lives, including our relationship with ourself, our understanding of what our purpose and meaning is, how the world works. It changes everything about us. We need others who are going through that too, because otherwise it can feel quite crazy making. It is very overwhelming. And I was not at all surprised when you write in the book about after you give talks, 
women come up to you and there's often the unspoken question, something like, can you please tell me how to sort my life out? Because you seem to have managed it. So could you have a go at mine? It reminded me of a flea bag asking the hot priest, just tell me what to do with my life, this sort of overwhelm. But unfortunately, you say no. <laughs> you can't fix it for them. I, I can't. It would be as likely as if I set you up on a blind date. I mean, only only you know your heart and soul's desire. But one of the really confusing things during grief is that we feel that we don't anymore. We feel that we've lost connection to the person who knew what we wanted to do with our lives, how the world worked, what our meaning and purpose was. I mean, grief is there's a there's a moment in grief in the healing of grief where you sort of you swim out into a dark ocean and you have to, at a certain point, you have to let go of the shore and you actually can't see the other side yet. There is a moment when you, when you let go of what was and you don't yet know what will be. And it is an utterly terrifying moment. And one of the things I talk about is the fact is there are many other people swimming in the water with you. It's just, it's dark, you can't see them. And gradually as your eyes get accustomed to the light, you will see that the sea is full of swimmers all going to that far shore that they can't see yet. It requires such courage to grieve, such incredible courage and only a dark night of the soul, so bad that in the end you're prepared to let go of that shore would, would send us on our way to the person we are becoming, who we don't know yet. It is absolutely the most misunderstood and the most profoundly transformative experience, human experience to, to grieve. And I think it is the engine of change. I think one of the reasons we are stuck in our society in so many ways is we're totally focused on the bright side of change, the bright, shiny, brand new you, new year, new this. But everything that is new, first of all, you have to let go of what is old and the emotion that allows you to let go is grief. So without grief, we can't change. I always like to bang on about the, um, I live in Denmark, so the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard would say that despair is is an agency of change. It's the, it's the emotion that you realise something is wrong and that what you have to do about it next. But as you say, it is terrifying. What advice do you give to women perhaps or, or anyone who is, is just wondering where to get that courage from? Where can we find that or at least shore up what we perhaps already have? I do, I do remember a moment of lying on the floor of my flat in London. I couldn't think of a single reason to, to get off the floor. I, I thought, well, I'll just stay here until I can think of a reason. And I lay there for most of the day, staring at a crack in the skirting board. The only reason that got me up in the end was my bladder, because I couldn't think of, I felt like I was a pointless individual using up oxygen that would be better used by someone else. I think the profundity of hopelessness that can be part of your grief and a part of childless grief when you you know you realize that you know not just I, I'm not going to have a baby but there's I'm not going to be part of the community of mothers I'm not going to be throw children's birthday parties I'm not going to give grandchildren to my parents it's like this is the lifelong living loss it's a test it's just quite frankly it's amazing that any of us come out the other end of it it's it, it's so profound and I think for me in that that time I felt like I fell through the floor of my own existence and I fell into a deeper place and it was a pit of despair, but underneath the despair, there was something else. There was something for me, something numinous, something that reminded me of the child I had been before puberty, 
that loved nature, that felt connected to the deeper cycles of existence, who didn't yet know that she was going to be denied the existence, you know, the experience of, of, of giving birth and being part of that wheel of life. I dropped into something that gave me a great sense of peace. It was as if when my soul was at its absolute lowest and probably quite close to death, I touched something that existed outside the realm of death and life that gave me a moment of strength. That's a profound, a profound experience. I, I wonder, did the idea of a new purpose, a, a plan B, as you talk about, did that start to come shortly after that experience? I was already kind of on my way. I thought my plan B was to become a psychotherapist. Um, I had wanted to be one for some time, but I had decided I couldn't become one until I was a mother because I thought I wouldn't understand the human condition until I was a mother uh, because the pronatalist beliefs were deep in me as well. And then when I realized I was definitely going to be childless, I thought, actually, I thought, I think, me and the human condition, we're actually quite well acquainted. <laughs> I think I can give it a go. So I moved forward with, with that plan. Um, you know, Gateway Women started a year after I'd already started my psychotherapy training. I didn't know Gateway Women was going to become this, this organization means so much to so, so many. I mean, my website's had 2 million hits. It, it's meant so much to so many people around the world. Childless men too. And I think it's really important to include them because the disenfranchised grief of childlessness is even more disenfranchised for childless men. It's as if they've been acculturated, well not as if, they have been acculturated, you know, not to, to be vulnerable and to be grieving your childlessness is to be incredibly vulnerable and there's very little support out there for them. I have encouraged several men over the years that I know to start something and um, if you go to my website and go to resources and click on childless men, everything that I know that is there for childless men is there. Okay, that's a good tip. I I spoke to Richard Clothier for for my book, and he has has done interviews about male infertility as well. And there's a great new BBC documentary with Rod Gilbert, the comedian. But yeah, as you say, it's it's one that's not spoken to. And is it up to thirty percent of fertility issues in couples are due to male factor infertility? But it's just not talked about. No, there's, I'm very pleased that infertility is starting to be talked about, but childlessness is infertility's sort of ugly stepbrother and sister. On the whole, even sort of documentaries and things I've been involved in, it's always my interview that gets cut because I represent the outcome that no one wants. Right. Um, and I would love to see childlessness and childless men and childless women, you know, have be more featured you know in uh, in public discourse rather than us being seen as a problem to be fixed and you speak very movingly in your ted talk about well you can explain it better than i can about what what actually you feel that that you have to offer and how important it is and um, even more reasons why the rest of us should be listening well i think i think childless women and men are part of that village you know, that we talk about to, to, you know, to bring up children. It's still so, it's so recent in human history that we are, we no longer kind of grow up and live our lives in, you know, in a, in a similar ge geographical area and have a large extended family. There always used to be childless aunts and bachelor uncles in families. There's an extraordinary book, um, Professor Rachel Trastel's 
um, book, How to Be Childless, is very much about the history of childlessness. And actually, there always used to be many, many childless women because it was often too expensive to get married. If you were a domestic worker, you weren't allowed to get married because if you got married, you had to leave service and that was the only work available. So there were, there were many, many childless women in families who had a hugely important role to play. And yet now we're, we're sort of demonized in a way that it wasn't easy to be a childless woman before, but it didn't carry quite the state the stigma it does now, I don't think. I think it's actually worse now than it, it was probably for a long time. Because there's this idea that we could have fixed it if we tried harder. Because of the new technologies and the new Or because we've chosen it because we're selfish career women. When actually, I don't know any of these career women. I know women with jobs. I've never met a career woman. I think the Daily Mail did find one once who said she preferred handbags to, to children, but she did come across as quite bonkers. Yeah, so in all the years, I mean, you know, the Daily Mail has obviously wanted a woman like that. They've only found one. But also, as you say, as someone who doesn't want children, of course, that is to be celebrated as well. And yeah, and pronatalism you touched on, but perhaps it might be helpful to explain that because I, I certainly wasn't familiar with that term until, until a couple of years ago. And I think it's something worth mentioning. Thank you. Yes, be, be prepared if you haven't heard of pronatalism. This is a bit like taking the red pill in the matrix, because once you see it, you can't unsee it. It is a, a subset of the ideology of patriarchy. And it, at its essence, it means that the only truly important way to be an adult is to be a parent, that parents have more value in society than people who do not have children. Now, in a way, this is not to undervalue the importance of parents or parenting, but it's a way of privileging one human experience over another. And that leads to a great deal of unfairness in society, which because it's wrapped up in pronatalism, is seen to be somehow natural and normal and acceptable. Uh, an example of this is what I call hashtag as a mother where being a mother gives a woman um, more weight to her opinion, even if it's about something which has nothing to do with parenting, then you wouldn't say as a childless woman. And it's, this, uh, it's just this constant microaggressions against childless women that they wouldn't understand. As Andrea Leedsom MP famously said of Theresa May, that she doesn't have a stake in the future, that somehow it makes us less responsible and less thoughtful Adults Now, childless women, childless people have always and continue to contribute enormously to the fabric of civic society that everyone's children relies upon. We are teachers, gynaecologists, shop workers, nurses, every kind of tax-paying member of the community. We pay the taxes that build the hospitals and schools and pay the teachers. We are part of this. We are not apart. From it. But pronatalism devalues our, our experience and our contributions. And you're also very, it's very helpful the way you talk about the importance of having a reality check on what motherhood is. You mentioned Rachel Cusk's book, but you know, motherhood is not an inoculation against sadness, disappointment, aging, loss, abandonment, betrayal, disease, old age and death. And I think that's a really helpful reminder as well. And as somebody who, who went through a lot of fertility treatment, and now I am a mother, there was a lot of guilt and shame attached to, you know, almost deflecting to the other side. But for many years, I felt I therefore couldn't 
let on any of the more challenging aspects of parenting. And you very generously point out that that is not helpful either. We shouldn't be pretending motherhood is this sort of hallowed uh, life, that actually the realities of all of our experiences should be shared so that we are coming to this with with a more clear-eyed perspective. I think it's incredibly important that motherhood or and childlessness are seen as two versions of a messy, perfect, imperfect human experience. They're just they're just different versions. Unfortunately, because of pronatalism, pronatalism puts motherhood on a pedestal, which is incredibly unhelpful for mothers who are just real human beings doing their best in an imperfect, muddly way with very challenging, you know, very challenging tasks to do. But what it does do is pronatalism also privileges the narrative of motherhood. So when mothers want to kind of talk about how hard it is, there is a space for that. There will be newspaper articles, there will be websites, there will be interviews about how challenging it is to be a parent. So they wear all of the wonderful things, it's the most meaningful thing I've ever done, and you'll get the challenging ones. But childlessness is not given that space. You know, childlessness, considering, you know, we are 25% of the adult population, we exist in a huge cultural blind spot. So once again, it is really important that all aspects of, of parenthood are explored. But there is a massive imbalance because actually what we don't hear is we don't hear all aspects of childlessness. And we very rarely hear my story, which is someone who wasn't able to have children, went through a massive dark night of the soul and is now out the other side and contributing to life in a meaningful way again. Childless women are usually either a cautionary tale for younger women on how not to screw up your life, or we are that childless woman who is destroyed by it. Or the really happy child free by choice woman who has lots of white cats and white dogs and white furniture in the holidays. They don't exist either. We're all just people muddling through as best we can. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for yeah, correcting me there. You're right. It's 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 not an equivalent and and highlighting, yes, the one in one in five, one in four you think going into future generations is clearly a lot of work left to be done. I think there is the, the millennial generation, the eldest of them is turning 40 this year. And I am really seeing as some of those start to join the Gateway Women online community and are sharing their stories, the amount of them who are childless due to social infertility, which actually the World Health Organization has listed as a, a form of infertility now. So not having a willing or suitable um, partner during their fertile years is so high and the the stigma that women face who are both single and childless you know that the jokey archetype of the crazy cat lady which is really not about cats it's about you know it's about her childlessness you know I had cats when I was married and no one called me a crazy cat lady it wasn't till I had cats and I was single and childless you know that it, it suddenly that and people think it's funny it's not funny it's just a socially acceptable way currently to kind of needle a childless, a single childless woman. But that that is really, really hard to find yourself single and childless, not by choice at midlife. There is even more stigma and even less understanding because there is this patriarchal idea that somehow you haven't been chosen. You haven't been seen as good enough for someone to have chosen to have a family with you. 
So there is this sense of being on the patriarchal scrap heap. And I'd also like to say that there is also zero kind of even thought space for the LGBT community who experience, have always experienced very high rates of childlessness before fertility treatments and continue to have the same experiences now. But there's this sense that if you are um, a lesbian or gay or bisexual woman, that you have chosen not to have children. There's very little recognition of how this impacts you. Um, you're kind of left out of the narrative. That's a really important point to make. Thank you. As this podcast, I have taken up so much of your time already, but is about how we can be sad well. And you have talked very movingly about the importance of finding your community and and opening up and, and finding a group and talking about it. You mentioned some other things in your book that I wonder if we could touch on in terms of things we can practically do when people are experiencing this. I love that napping was high up there on the charts, that power naps, helpful, and creativity and music. And you also mentioned that that mournful music, so sad music, can act as a companion in our times of grief. I love that. What what helps you? What's been useful have you found? I've actually discovered film scores it seems that music that's in a minor key, uh, which is often kind of, you know, a sort of a, 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 a sort of a moody film, so Hans Zimmer, I got completely addicted to the soundtrack to Gladiator whilst I was in deep grief. And actually even think about it, it makes me want to cry now because there's this, there's, there's this scene at the end of Gladiator where he is mourning the loss of his, his wife and his child who've been murdered when he comes back to his land right at the end. And he's walking through these waving fields of corn and there's this swelling Hans Zimmer soundtrack and I'm just in pieces. <laughs> yes, I can see you now. And anything by Hans Zimmer, I'm away, honestly, it's terrible. So this sense that it allowed me to, to access, in a way, grief work is about making visible the invisible. It is making tangible the intangible, which is why ritual is so important. So often, you know, we, we hold rituals where we kind of come together and we read out letters of goodbye to the children who are not in our lives, you know, and we burn them and we bury the ashes. And, you know, we, we have this sense of a community mourning and ritual. Uh, women build shrines in their gardens at Christmas time, one of the things we talk about is buying Christmas ornaments that represent those children and putting them on the tree. It's so important. To, that's what ritual is for. That's why it's so deeply encoded in the human experience. It's to make tangible the intangible. And music is one way of doing that. And many women can't read during grief. It's very, very common in my experience. Many people can't read. And so listening to audiobooks can be incredibly helpful. And you may find that poetry and art touches you in a very, very deep way. I went so deep into the literature of grief and I found such deep sense of peace that right back from the ancient Greeks onwards, people have been writing about grief. And I felt that across thousands of years, this person who was writing this understood me in a way that sometimes people around me didn't. And I think my heart was more open to great art and to the numinous when I was in deep grief. I, I would spend, I spent a whole afternoon in the, in the Seagram murals um, room in the Tate Modern Gallery in London, in that low light, just sitting. I was almost inside those paintings because they spoke to my heart so deeply of deep, deep loss. There is something very moving about getting some perspective and realising 
as you say, that other people have experienced this sense of grief throughout time, throughout geography. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. And I always like to end by asking, with all that you know now, and this is perhaps a more loaded question than it than it might have been for, for other guests, but what advice you would give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad and how to handle grief well? I was so angry <laughs> when I was 21. I was very sad. I was coming out of a traumatic childhood and I, I didn't have any idea how to be me. I think I would say to that younger me that there is great beauty and richness and wisdom in your sadness, that it is not an illness. It is not a character failure. It is your soul speaking. And if you listen, it has so much to teach you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Jodie Day. Thank you so much, Helen. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How to Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.